Hello, I'm Chris and this is CB Music Club. Good to be back. It's been a long time. We are back in the room again with Al. Hi, Al. And Nick. Yo. And Will. Yo, yo. Hi. How are we doing, chaps? Pretty good. Hi, all right. I'm feeling awesome. Good. Glad to hear it. So... We'll get onto the album of the year in a minute, but we start as ever with what you're drinking. Nick, what's in your jar tonight, fella? I have some rhubarbra Streisand milkshake pale ale. Ooh, Ooh interesting. I gotta get me some of that. This is just a starting point. We'll see where we go after this. What are you on, Al? I've got a couple of beers by the Bad Company Brewing Co, who a bit of a favourite of mine, it seems, on these podcasts. You do drink a lot of that. The one, I've got um, some Boston Tea Party which is a new and improved recipe, a bit wasted on me because I've never had it before. Very good. How about you, Will? I've got something from the Buxton Brewery called Nargill, and it's coconut pastry stout. And listen Ooh. to that. It makes a noise when you open it. Nice. Like beer should. Yeah. <laughs> makes my heart go all a flutter. <laughs> anyway, I'm drinking uh, whiskey inspired by my recent trip to Isla. I've got a nice uh, 15-year-old Beaumont. Ooh. Lovely. Oh, nice. Cheers. It's lounge. Oh, Did you goodness. steal it? No, I didn't. <laughs> Why not? I acquired it. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing, yeah? Which is exactly what a gentleman thief would do. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. And what are we listening to? Or what have we been listening to over these last few days? Let's start with Al. I have been listening to our old friends, or old friend rather, the RB Bazaar. Uh, dipping into his uh, ever-growing discography. He's put another album out already. He is a prolific chap, isn't he? Seems to be, yeah. But I've been listening to his previous one, which is called Greetings from the People's Republic of Shame, which is just him and an acoustic guitar. His father's acoustic guitar, apparently. Um, just singing, frankly, some rather good songs, which I, in some cases I wish he'd actually done in a full band setup rather than just the acoustic guitar. But it's some good work. It's incredibly lo-fi. But I like it. Apart from that, I I was listening to um, I was listening to Buffalo Tom at the weekend. Who, if you don't know them, they're sort of nineties college rock, I suppose, from Waston in Massachusetts. I've been listening to their album uh, Sleepy Eyed, which is my favourite one by them, which came out in ninety six something like that, I think, and is great. I love it. How about you, Nick? I have been listening to Anderson Pack, who's an American rapper, singer, producer, multi instrumentalist who I really like because he essentially has started as a drummer and uh, is a very musical drummer in the Stevie Wonder sense of things. And he's released quite a few albums, which I really admire. And I'd found that he'd put up on YouTube a concert or something that him and his band, the Free Nationals, had done in some big house in California somewhere recently, which is absolutely fantastic. A little live set, real soulful in that. He's got a real sense of the, that kind of 70s Stevie Wonder vibe. But as I was going down that rabbit hole, he dropped a new single this week, collaboration with Bruno Mars. And it's a real throwback 70s soul 
track, and it's absolutely fantastic. Lovely, lovely. What have I been listening to this week? It's Future Islands, As Long As You Are, which was brought out in 2020, recommended to me by my beautiful wife. She told me that For Sure was the best track of the album, and to be honest, I agree. It's very samey. They managed to do samey very well, so that's a good thing. So, yeah, Future okay. Islands, really enjoyed it. Someone better ask me what, what I... are you, Chris? Thank you. What have you been listening to? <laughs> Funny you should ask. Not a huge amount. I have dived deep into the Beatles' back catalogue as a little bit of um, due diligence and research. So listen to the first five Beatles albums before listening to our featured album this week, just to kind of put it in a little bit of context. And the other thing I've listened to, which I spoke a little bit about week before last, when I discovered a, a wedding present track that had come out ahead of an album, which has now come out, Lockdown and Stripped Back, which is um, a dozen of their finest tunes from their back catalogue, but they've recorded them all under lockdown conditions so they've all individually done their piece from their um, front rooms and then spliced them all together and uh, yeah rather lovely rather lovely kind of softer versions of their late 80s early 90s of This week we are in 1965 and we're going to hand over to Will who's going to give us a rundown of what the world was like way back then. Will. So here we are in 1965. Well, Winston Churchill died on January the 24th, aged 90 years old. Malcolm X was assassinated just a month later on the 21st of February, aged 39. The American, Ed White, was the first to conduct a spacewalk on June the 3rd, which is yeah. The Russians did it for the motherland a month earlier in March. And this kind of tit-for-tat of putting dogs in space, putting monkeys in space, putting satellites in space, that really heralded what we've come to know as the space race. And a lot of people look at the space race and think about all the money that's put into um, space But I've got another way of thinking about it. The only place that really America and Russia work together, it appears, is actually in space. And the International Space Station is a very good example of that. So, you know, if for nothing else, space seems to be where we're keeping our humanity these days. Of course, the Beatles got involved in the space race after Bob Dylan turned them on as well. Uh Uh-huh. In 65. Of course. The great train robber, Ronnie Biggs, goes on the run after escaping from Wandsworth Prison. He eventually ends up in prison, where in 1978 he recorded the song No One Is Innocent with the remaining Sex Pistols, Paul Cook and Steve Jones. And that is a song that is just not worthy of any playlist. So instead, (laughs) I'd like to give you the Pistols' Holiday in the Sun. And I've chosen this one in recognition of the lifting of COVID restrictions that this summer Sunseekers will be doing just that, which will inevitably lead to lockdown four in September. <laughs> that means we'll be able to look forward to coming out of lockdown again. Hopefully to do our first gig in November. Music-wise, the Beatles debuted their film Help, which actually I really love that film, um, on the 29th of July. 
Musicians born this year include Wet Wet Wet's uh, Marty Pello, and that's that's a Scottish thing coming in there. Mun the Wets. (laughs) And also, I'm sorry, whoever you are, but their bassist was also born in that year, but I can't remember his name. Who else? Well, uh, Warsaw's finest Goldie was also born. So in terms of musicians that we would know, not many deaths there. This year, uh, and the most famous of them all, I think, um, would have been Nat King Cole, who oh. died sadly of lung cancer, which is not a good way to go. I have a story about Nat King oh, Cole. Let's hear it. Yes, please. My grandmother was a famous actress in Northern Ireland. She was. Is this the one who wouldn't iron your Sex Pistols t-shirt? No, that's the other granny. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> My grandmother was straight lady to an Irish comedian called Jimmy Young, not that Jimmy Young, (laughs) who was one of these sort of comedians who crossed the religious divide in Northern Ireland. He was very famous in the 50s and 60s, had a TV show on the BBC in the 70s. My granny was a straight lady. He played a whole range of characters, which you can still find stuff on YouTube and it hasn't aged very well. But he was quite famous. And so therefore, my grandmother got invited to all the cool parties. And was invited to a party in, I think, the late 50s in Big Hotel in the centre of Belfast after the Nat King Cole show. He was playing in Belfast. And so she'd gone along with my grandfather and her young daughter, my mother, who was a little blonde girl in a pretty dress. Nat King Cole had her up sitting on his knee while he played piano in this party way back when. How cool is that? Um, I'm very impressed. I've got another Irish music story. One of the Dubliners stayed at my house when I was a kid because he was playing the folk club up the road. There you go. Woo. Oh, well. Now Bevan used to come to our house for a cup of tea. There you go. <laughs> but he did, I don't think he played anything. OK, I'm going to end with, in June of the year, um, the US President Lyndon Johnson signed a bill requiring cigarette manufacturers to add health warnings to the packaging. And this is a staggering irony, as in this year the US continues to wage war in Vietnam, decimate civilian populations, thousands and thousands of deaths in the armed forces. You know, reading through the year, it's spiced with this happened in Vietnam, this happened in Vietnam. It's like a, a, a bad gift that kept on giving in 1965. And so I'll end this with just, I'm just reminded of Elvis Costello's What's So Funny of Peace, Love and Understanding. Okay, that's 1965. So we're in 1965, and this time around we've been listening to Rubber Soul by the Beatles. A lot of big albums in 65, as I think we discussed last time around, but we haven't done the Beatles before, so it seemed a good place to go. Beatles' sixth studio album. And they were turning them around at a fair old rate. They had two albums out in 63, two in 64, and then Rubber Soul was the second album they put out in 65 after Help. So only two years after the start of Beatlemania, things were fairly bonkers for the Fab Four at this point. They'd just got back from their latest North American tour. They'd set a new attendance record, playing to over 55,000 people at Shea Stadium in August. They met Dylan. They met Presley for the first time. So things were really hurtling along. But they were starting to get a bit bored of Beatlemania and the screaming fans. And they had quite a lot of commercial clout at this point. And 
and they started to get a bit more interested in pushing the boundaries. It was the first time, apparently, that they were able to get into the studio without having a concert or a film commitments or radio commitments. So they were just able to concentrate on the album. Quite unusual at the time, because albums, I suppose their previous stuff, Help and Hard Day's Night, obviously were as much about promoting the films as the music. And their early albums were, I guess, about showcasing their set as a live band. It was all about getting the fans through the doors and getting out on the road. This was a watershed moment in terms of the album being an artistic entity in its own right, rather than just a collection of singles or hits. And it did kind of changed the industry as I understand it and started getting bands and musicians to think more about the album and put their creative energies into creating something that worked as a whole. This is the album that Brian Wilson apparently heard and which has spurred him on to make Pet Sounds because the Beatles were so far ahead of where everyone else were in terms of the use of the studio. Yes, which then in turn spurred the Beatles on to make Sergeant Peppers. No, you're right about the use of the studio. It was taking the studio to... Um, yeah, pushing the boundaries. That's the phrase I was looking for. Thank you. Pushing the boundaries of the studio. The remarkable thing is they were still only in the studio for like four weeks or something. Four weeks in the studio to put out... I've lost track of the number of tracks in this album. Well, there's 14 on the album, plus they also recorded Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out, which released a single. Having said that, they were up against it. They did reach a point where they were having to cancel studio days because they didn't yet have enough material. So Lennon and McCartney, they were almost writing this album as they were recording it in the studio. The speed in which it was put together is extraordinary. A track a day, pretty much, at that sort of rate. Obviously, George Martin, big influence, and seemed to be a fairly amicable affair. There's reports of the first signs of musical tension between Lennon and McCartney. The band, at this point, had started experimenting with hallucinogenic drugs, although McCartney had refused to do LSD, which Lennon, Harrison, and Ringo Starr had all dabbled into. So, you know, they're starting to kind of push in different directions. Having gone back and listened to those preceding albums... By the time they get to help, things are changing. But by the time they get into Rubber Soul, it's a very different Beatles signature sound than you know what they were doing only mm. kind of a year before. It's only the second Beatles album to contain all original material. Hard Day's Night was the other one. But a lot of their other albums are, are stacked full of covers. Lennon said that Rubber Soul was the first album over which the band had complete creative control. And I think we can hear that. A lot of new instruments, experimentation, the sitar. The harmonium, the fuzz bass, change is afoot here. It was released on the 3rd of December 1965. Help came out in May or June of that year. Then they went on tour. They came back from tour and they were up against it to get their almost annual December album out. So a lot of pressure. And this is what they produced. On the day of the release, the band performed at the Odeon in Glasgow, which was the first date on what would be their final UK tour. I was amazed by that. Their final UK tour. This is their fifth album. What do they have? Ten albums out? Well, they stopped touring in 66, didn't they? I was surprised the Beatles stopped touring effectively sort of halfway through their career. What's going on here? What are they doing instead? They became a studio band. Just became a studio band. Out of a deliberate wish to get away from the kind of hordes of screaming fans or just exhaustion of On the Road or it was just... At this point and well into the 70s, album sales basically drove the money-making machine Mm. and tours... Mm lost money big time i think also the live experience was different then the equipment wasn't up to it yes that's true so you stayed in with the, they actually just couldn't hear themselves mm. they yeah. didn't have sophisticated mm. monitors and things like that it became a pointless experience because they couldn't perform well and they decided not to do it 
There was a line I read from George Martin saying Rubber Soul was an album that was conceived never intended to be played live just because of the kind of orchestral arrangement, the complexity of it. It was never something that was going to kind of work as a four-piece live on stage. I think another thing about them retiring from touring is also it's difficult to appreciate just how ridiculously famous the Beatles were. They're probably the most famous people there have ever been in Western civilization. Mm, the mm. insanity that followed them everywhere, I, I can't say I blame them for mm. just not wanting to be a part of that anymore. Must- it must have been, exhausting. you know, three or four years of yeah. just just madness following them around. I'm amazed they actually managed to survive it, quite honestly. Yeah, people subjected to that kind of exposure now would very quickly, you'd imagine, crumble. Yeah. It spent 42 weeks in what was then the record retailer LPs chart, which subsequently became the UK album chart. It knocked the sound of music off the number one spot and then stayed there for eight weeks. A big seller. George Harrison actually said it was his favourite Beatles album back in 1995. So it starts with Drive My Car. you add a cowbell and a tambourine to any track, it's a way to my musical heart. I love this track. It's one of my favourite of the album. And it's not mechanised. It's just tidy, tight playing. Mm. Everything is just absolutely right. So, yeah, I love this track. It's precise, isn't it? I yeah. love that. Yeah. The, the percussion just rattles through it. It's just, it is so tight and so simple, but it's just so strong. And it just yeah. picks you up and takes you. Brilliant opener for yeah. the album. Yeah. Can we deal with one point? We might as well do it in the first song here. That Why not? Yeah. A lot of people have this idea that Ringo Starr wasn't a good drummer. And you're talking <laughs> about how it drives along so well and all, no pun intended. Ringo <laughs> Starr was a great drummer. Um, mm. Absolutely mm-hmm. rock solid. He, he was metronomic in his playing and really interesting. And the thing about him being left-handed and he played right-handed, which means that all his... We've mentioned this, I'm sure, in the podcast before, that his fills have weird timings because he leads the fills with his left hand, which, left, right, yeah. which right-handed mm-hmm. drummers obviously wouldn't actually do. So he tends to go into fills a bit late and they sound odd, but they, they don't sound wrong. But yeah, he's an excellent drummer and people who have this idea that, that he was rubbish... Um, are simply wrong, objectively, absolutely wrong. And shame on them. Shame on them. How's how's that? How's that idea being allowed to come about then? Is it the kind of, I mean, is it deceptively simple what he's doing? Paul is McCartney it the said it's not no. big flamboyant drum solos. It was Lennon, wasn't it, that said oh, that Lennon. Uh, oh, right. Ringo Starr wasn't even the best drummer the in best the Beatles. The best drummer in the Beatles, yeah. And that actually <laughs> never happened. And yeah, statement. exactly. Yeah, yeah. He never said that. He never said it. It's a Jasper Carrot joke. <laughs> right? Which has gone into legend as being mm. John oh, Lennon was interviewed and said that. Is, is Ringo the best drummer in the world? He's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. And he never said it. And he was the best drummer in the Beatles. And the other three could play drums as well. Ringo probably got a bit frustrated with the other three wanting to play drums on songs. There are songs that have McCartney playing drums on them. The Ballad of John mm. and Yoko is just Lennon and McCartney playing on it. And McCartney's a good drummer as well, that has to be said. But, but anyway, I just wanted to make that yeah. point before anyone suggested that, that Ringo's not great. Ringo was great. 
I like Drive My Car a lot as well, by the way. I think it's a fantastic song. It's got a great groove to it. It's really soulful. It's funny, mm. which is great. You know, the, the mm-hmm. lyrics are really witty. Mm-hmm. It's got a great story, hasn't it? You know, yeah. it's... With a punchline. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the standout things with this album, which we're coming yeah. to. There, there are some very good stories in here. Drive My Car was one of the songs I knew off the album, but as you may remember on one of our pre-podcast days when we were talking about Horse and No Name by America, and I was saying that... I've heard this song a thousand times, but I've never listened to it. And it's kind of like that with Drive My Car here, that I never really listened to it. Mm-hmm. And that piano part, I knew it, but I, I never really thought about how great it is. And I didn't know George Harrison's guitar solo, which is absolutely brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just a much better song than I'd ever appreciated it as being. I just thought of it as being sort of throwaway, blue-eyed soul kind of thing, which in a way it is, but it's much better than that as well. It's a great song. A great opener as well. The other thing I want to big it up on is how wonderfully it's recorded and produced and mixed and everything considering it's from 1965 if you go listen to a lot of other music from 1965 drive my car sounds better than anything else it's a glorious piece of work it's really Mm, really good totally agree with that going back to ringo's drumming al you said it's a great opener for Mm. an album the intro to this song the drum intro to this song is absolutely fantastic it's what you know one of those classic songs where they're just the opening drums just set the yeah. tone for the entire album yeah. and it's it's just a lovely little fill right at the beginning and he does that when you go in the, each of the choruses he's doing something different but it is such a marker and it yeah. is spectacular yeah. Vocal harmony set the stall for the album as well. There's there's two three parts there, and it creates a lovely a lovely sound. Yeah, I thought the harmonies were great. That opening you mentioned mm. Nick, is really brilliant as well because it's one of those that it kind of throws you off the timing. You know that the little lead part in the guitar, you d- you don't quite know where it's going, and it's not till the drums actually really establish the beat that you. Under- I like that. You know, mm. it's it just keeps you on your toes. Right. So Norwegian Wood track two. She asked me to stay and she told me to sit down. I just love this song again and this is different to Drive My Car there's just grace and beauty in this one isn't there Mm. this got a three tick definitely for the vocals it's the four on this aren't they it's a very pared down song I think my difficulty is the wrong word but one of the challenges with this album is to listen to it with fresh ears because so many of these songs you're so familiar with it's just trying to listen to them as if for the first time. And, and you know, this one is not my favourite track on the album, but it is something beautiful and f- so very different from anything that they've done before. I didn't realise how this story ends. <laughs> Do you know how this story ends? He starts a fire. Isn't it good? Well, he burns down her house. Yeah. Out of frustration. I didn't catch that because I very rarely listen to lyrics. The vocal's a little bit quiet in the mix as well. It is actually quite difficult to pick out what he's singing. The idea of a sitar, I find quite epic. But the sitar on it's really brilliant, actually. Hats off to George Harrison for that. It goes so nicely with, especially listening on headphones on the stereo mix and the acoustic guitar on one side and the sitar on the other. It sounds really good. So I haven't particularly previously paid attention particularly to the Beatles' timeline. But this is way before they met Maharishi. So do, you know, do we know where the, the sitar influence came from? I don't know, no. Uh, it was the second-hand shop in... Um, just... 
in Liverpool, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> just PR, presumably. I think it may have just been as simple as that they were just starting to push and discover uh, and just kind of go in search of, of something that's different. In the back of my head, I've got a story, and maybe I'm just making this up, and, it, and if I am making it up, it just works anyway. Didn't the guy hear that on the album and so he contacted and said, you know, that's I how... I think you might yeah. be right about that, yeah. Yeah, I think it was just a case of George Harrison thinking it needed something different, and mm. he had a sitar, so he played it. Yeah, and, mm. and that, that caused the connection. One of my favourite covers ever is of this song, by the way, by Buddy Rich, and his band is on his album Big Swing Face. and uh, It's great. Mm-hmm. It's, it's big. It's a big band, jazz, you know, it's really, really mm-hmm. good. The other thing worth pointing out with Norwegian Wood, it's two minutes and five seconds long. Yeah. It's just extraordinary. And they cram so much into yeah. it. I actually can't believe that. If you'd have said it's three, three and a half minutes, I'd have gone, no. yeah, that, that, that's it. There's no fat on it. It's totally trimmed down. No, you know, the not... song ends and then it stops. And, and you know, when I say the song, you know, the story ends, the singing ends, and then they just once more through the riff and that's it. Whereas these days, you'd have like a minute and a half fade out of just playing the same bit over and over. That two minutes and five seconds contains a three-act story, you know, and, and also a little bit of space as well. There's so yeah. much in that, in such a short space of time. It's extraordinary. It's a great piece of songwriting. Time after time, you refuse to even listen. the shortest track on the album to the longest at a mammoth three minutes 20 seconds you won't see me this was the longest song they'd ever recorded at this point you know is that right yeah i know it's insane and it's still not very long at all i think it feels a little bit too long to be honest there's a little midsection in it that really reminds me of um i'll make it clear by teenage fan club which is on Grand Prix, which we talked about recently. I'll make it clear, it's a very similar midsection. I didn't know You Won't See Me, so I didn't know that until now, that uh, Norman Blake had stolen it from the Beatles. Good on him. (laughs) I think it just goes on a little bit too long. It's still quite short at three and a half minutes, but I think that it would have been better at two and a half minutes. It's a good song, though. I like it. For me, this is a real tidy tune. It's a song that I'll never remember, but when I listened to it, I really liked it. It's it's a weird one. It's not memorable. I know what you mean. One of the things I'm struggling with is trying to work out which of these tracks I already knew. There's not many that I didn't know the first time around, but I have listened to this album quite a lot. I know them all now because I've listened to them all for the last mm. couple of weeks. But the first listen, this was one of those tracks that I didn't know. It's not the strongest track on the album, I agree, this one. It's about McCartney's uh, disintegrating relationship with Jane Asher, isn't it? Jane Asher. One of three tracks on this album, apparently, about McCartney's disintegrating relationship with Jane Asher. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd be very happy if I was her about that song. No. <laughs> Although she no, might take no, the view that, no. hey, it's quite a good song, right? And she also got the longest song they'd recorded to that point written about her. Take the Post is where they come. She should be very happy then. Yeah.
So nowhere, man. This is another one that I knew before, but without really knowing it. And I'll tell you why. Do you guys remember Stars on 45? Yeah. Yes. I had to go and look this up because I knew there was one with the Beatles on it and I knew there was an ABBA one. And I thought the ABBA one was first, but actually the first one was just a bunch of 60s hits, but most of them were Beatles songs. Drive My Car was one of them. Uh, Nowhere Man was one of them. I can't remember uh-huh. which other mm-hmm. ones there were, but um, this is where I knew Nowhere Man from. Although I'm quite sure I've heard it many times since. Stars and 45 was a kind of an early compilation album, wasn't it? But everything just ran into one track. It was a single. I remember the, the stars on 35 keep on burning in your eyes, but yeah. we can break it up. Remember to it. Yeah, that one. They were a Dutch pop group. I've read up about them. That explains everything. It certainly does. But this was my introduction to the Beatles with Stars on 45. So you could argue that it's not all bad. It's not a strong argument. (laughs) No. This is one of the greats, I think, on this album. Yeah, definitely. A timeless Beatles classic. It's a good example of them absorbing and starting to show their influences. And Norwegian Wood is obviously coming from Dylan. And Nowhere Man is the Birds, isn't it? I mean, it really sounds like the Birds. I love the the sort of main chorus refrain. It's really good. It's a lovely piece of songwriting. It's a great opening run. Those first four songs are really fantastic. Mm. They really mm-hmm. nail it. And we like that in an album, don't we? Nowhere Man is the first, it was either the first Beatles single or the first Beatles song that wasn't about boy meets girl and falls in love or falls out of love as its subject matter. Yeah, sorry, my uh, my Google speaker has just responded to something that I said. I don't know why. <laughs> I wonder what that was. Good. That's, <laughs> That's the first heckling on the podcast we've had. <laughs> yeah. Uh. All right, Google. <laughs> At least someone's listening to you, (laughs) Even better than that, um, Google has heard a request for some reason for a song and it's playing some music in the background. (laughs) Wow. Hey, Google, stop. I have to say that the bass on this track is absolutely incredible. I really, really loved it. If you're going to put great bass onto a song, it's the way to my musical heart for sure. Can I ask, are we liking this album so far? Obviously, we're quite effusive about the tracks, but are we liking it as well as praising it? Yes, definitely. Brilliant opening, yeah, brilliant opening. Mm. This is the first time I've ever listened to a Beatles album, and to be honest, I've never really listened to the Beatles at all because Ah. they came the wrong time in my upbringing, if you like. I think in my life was probably the phrase you were looking for there. I love it. Yeah, I'm enjoying it very much up until this point. What you're saying is absolutely right. Isn't it odd, though, that we're four blokes that like our music and listen to a lot of music, and the Beatles are inarguably one of the greatest bands that there has ever been, arguably the greatest band that has ever been, and none of us have really spent any time listening to Beatles albums. Let's move on to track five, Think For Yourself, then, shall we? Do what you want to do And go away This, I think, is my favourite, certainly one of my favourites on the album. There's a lot of birds coming into this, but it's got a very strong sound. And again, it's got that rhythm percussion coming in. I like it a lot. It's one of three songs on the album that I don't particularly like. Oh, okay. This is the best of the three songs that I don't particularly like. It's okay. It's a George Harrison song. Yeah. Which I think is notable because the chorus isn't particularly good. The verse is good, but the chorus isn't that catchy. And I do think that perhaps 
Harrison at this point just wasn't quite the songwriter that he would become. He was still a bit of a novice compared to Lennon and McCartney, and he just didn't have that feel for catchy pop, maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like the way it drives forward, and the change in the beat between the verse and the chorus is quite good, but I just don't, I think the chorus is a bit weak, to be honest. I don't like McCartney's fuzz bass on it either. I think it's annoying. It feels gimmicky. And I'm criticising it, but I would say this is probably still better than almost all pop music that was being recorded in the mid-60s. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? Even the bad tracks are better than anything anyone that ever has Pretty ever much, t- yeah. had ever done at this point. It's one of three that I'm not that keen on. But, you know, it's a decent song. I think the reason I might be drawn to this is because it's one that I was just not familiar with at all and it's maybe it's kind of novelty and freshness that mm. makes it stand out for me. Nick, what did you think of Think For Yourself? I sort of agree with that. I was hoping you'd say I agree with what you guys have said. <laughs> well, Given it's called Think For I Yourself. Think, I, think I, <laughs> I thought I was going to be a bit harsh there on Harrison's songwriting but because I think it's still a pretty good song. I just keep coming back to that refrain, that do what you want to do thing. That's really stuck with me uh-huh. right the way through yeah. my life, I think. I'm with Al on the fuzz bass here. It is annoying. It's still a great song and it still gets at least a tick. Even when they're doing it badly, they're still getting a good review from me. The way the chorus comes in is also really interesting, the way it changes. Yeah, I like that. I like it. The fuzz, I believe it's the same one that the Rolling Stones used on Satisfaction, which was earlier in the year. It sounds very much like it to my ears. It's brand new technology at the time and it hardly been yeah, used. Yeah, yeah. At least they're embracing the new, even if I'm not particularly pleased with the results myself. We can't criticise them for trying something different. And using it on the bass as well, and not on the guitar. Lennon's first song about love is a sort of empowering force in the way that all you need is love or whatever. It's his first song of that nature. I think it's fantastic, the word. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Best song on the album so far, I think. Ringo's drumming on it is just spectacular. It's really, really brilliant. Again, it's got that real sort of change of feel for the verse, the brilliant harmonies in the chorus. If that had been recorded in the mid-70s, it would be massive, gigantic rock sound, but that really wasn't possible in 1965. It's still pretty powerful, though. What pulled me into this song is that honky-tonk piano that was early on before it got into the big stuff, and it was just cleverly done. Really nice. It's another one that I wasn't familiar with, and it sounds fresh, and it sounds well ahead of its time, I think. Right, Michelle, obviously know this one. Michelle. Everyone familiar with Michelle beforehand? This is 
a wonderful example of how the Beatles can do quiet, gentle songs that still have a great deal of umph about them. I'm not over-fond of the French lyrics, to be honest with you, but it is a great song. The vocal melody on this is, is absolutely astonishing. It's just perfect. Yeah, it's Beautiful. Again, just a really pared-down song as well, and it's, it's a bit like Norwegian Wood in its style. Yeah. The voice to the fore, very, very kind of pared-down instrumentation. There's something about the confidence in the words as well, the fact that Paul's singing in French. You wouldn't have caught him doing that a year and a half before. It is confidence, isn't it? That's somebody growing up. This is said to be the album where they grew up, isn't it? Guy turns up at a fancy dress party. He's in his regular clothes. He's carrying his girlfriend on his back. And the host says, what have you come as? He says, I'm a turtle. He says, yeah, what's she? That's Michelle. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> um, I think Michelle, Michelle, it's a lovely change of style and pace, isn't it? Now, apparently this is a song that McCartney had kicking around since he was a teenager, probably before they were the Beatles. And he used to play oh, at parties him. to try and impress girls. And considering that, I mean, obviously it may have become a, a lot more sophisticated when they actually decided they were going to record it for the album. But, you know, if this is what he was just like churning out to impress girls when he was 15 or whatever, that's quite impressive, really. Uh, it's a very nice song. My songs never ever managed that. Did yours, Al? Did you ever do that? Play something in front of a girl and she'd go, Oh, Al, you're so wonderful. Once. Wow. None. None for me. I really like the guitar solo in this song as well. Another great George Harrison moment. Talking about how this is sophisticated songwriting, you're telling me that he actually wrote it when he was a teenager. Whereas you look at the track Girl, and that's not sophisticated lyrics writing. They're mimicking the noise of smoking dope and they're singing They're still boys. Nick, coming back to the playing songs to girls to try and pull birds, as it were, did you ever, ever have a problem as a drummer doing that? Because I would imagine you would. Hey, I've just got this song for you. Oh, where's she gone? Yeah. <laughs> Girls always have a different expectation of a drummer. Ooh. <laughs> it's all in the hips. It's all in the hips. <laughs> One time I was playing at a festival in the summer back in the 2000s. I played bass in this band and there was this young lady who was telling me that girls like the bass suggestively and i said to her yeah well you haven't heard me playing it yet (laughs) (laughs) too self-deprecating i can't help it i have to talk myself down you do it so well we're happy to do it for you i appreciate how much you helped me out in that respect (laughs) that was the last track on side a as it would have been the first half of the album is just brilliant the first time i listened to it i was a bit like meh i don't know but i've come around to thinking that the first half of this is just spectacular Bloody hell. I mean, I can sort of see why so many people like the Beatles now. I'm shocked, to be honest, how good it is. I know Norwegian Wood is a brilliant song because I've heard it so many times. But when you listen to it nestled in with other amazing tracks as well, then you go, oh my God. These guys are pretty good. And I suppose it's in part the fact that you've got Lennon, McCartney and Harrison writing songs, but there's a lot of variety here, isn't there? For seven yes. tracks and there's, there's not really two that sound the same. And if there is a weakness, and it's something that's not their fault, it's because of when it's recorded and the limitations of what they could actually do in the studio. You know, it doesn't have the tonal breadth that you get of modern music. But that's not their fault. It's just that's how things were. They're recording on a four-track recorder and, and making the best of it. And also the speed in which they were doing it. They're one of the first bands to start exploring what the studio can do as well. Up, up yeah. until this point, the studio is just a place where you just go and you just almost play live and 
record what you got. I think to some degree that is what they did, though, because something like Strawberry Fields Forever, there are endless takes of it. They recorded it in different styles, different speeds, different keys, just to see what worked. And in the end, Strawberry Fields Forever, sorry, I'm digressing from Rubber Soul, but it's really interesting because the final recording is made up of two separate takes. Go and listen to Strawberry Fields Forever later, tomorrow, whatever. It starts with the chorus and then as a verse. And then at the start of the second chorus, there's this really weird moment. Let me take it down because we're going. On the going, it changes from one take to another. They're in different keys. So one is speeded up and one is slowed down. And it Uh also changes the the tone of Lennon's voice. But it's just this weird moment that you've probably heard lots of times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. it's because it's two completely separate versions that were in different keys that have been spliced together. This was because there was something in the other half of both takes that they didn't like? It was the beginning they liked most and the rest of it that they liked most. Um, And because they could as well. A thing that's simple to do these days it take five minutes to splice two bits together and change the key of one so they matched. Yeah, Whereas right. then, you know, you had to physically get two bits of tape and play them at different speeds and record them onto another bit of tape. And it, it's yeah. just mental. They just had to be really creative to overcome barriers that don't exist any longer. Anything to say about the first half of the album before we have a break, Nick? I like it. It's a hit. <laughs> goes on least favorite track on the album i don't really like that sort of bluegrassy kind of folky thing that they've got going on here my dad's a great lonnie donegan fan don't really get it well i do get it it's what rock and roll is built on isn't it after all but Mm -hmm. don't really dig the sound Uh, wedding present did a great cover of cumberland gap oh it sounds like a service station on the m1 doesn't it but different cumberland what do we think of what goes on will i hate it I really do hate it. <laughs> this was uh, Ringo's first vocal. Sorry, his first his first songwriting credit. I feel bad uh, now. I like this. I quite liked it as well. Yeah, um, I genuinely like it. No li- qualification required. Yeah. I like Skiffle. I think there's mm-hmm. this is what sort of connects Skiffle and the birds later on as well. I'm with you, Will. It's the least impressive. It's the least grabby song. Grabby shouldn't be a good word, should it? You know what I mean, on the album. I'll accept that it is lightweight and it's a bit throwaway, but I think it's still got a bit of magic about it. It's really well sung. The harmony vocals are great, but, but Ringo's singing is good as well. Mm. It's charming. I think the guitar solo is no good in it, though. After bigging up Harrison a couple of times, I think um, this one's pretty poor. You build them up and you knock them down, don't you? <laughs> That's right. Right, track nine, girl. Is there anybody going to listen to my story All about the girl who came to stay She's the kind of girl you want so much it makes you sorry Still you don't regret a single day Ah, girl It was just the breaths he was taking between lines rather than a deliberate toking Do you think, sound effect that was added. The, the, the whole thing was supposed to sound like it just seemed like there was lots of 
they were trying to make each other laugh in the studio. According to our old friend Wikipedia, the tit 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 on the middle eight was to capture the innocence of the Beach Boys singing La 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 on one of their recent songs. So rather than school bell tittering, tittering this, it was um, mm-hmm. a nod to their contemporaries. Still think they were just being juvenile. I quite like the lazy groove on this song. I like this one. I didn't connect to what you've just been talking about. And so in my headmaster role here, I've taken a mark off their score. Well, I think you should put it back on for their cleverness with uh, time signatures in it. The way that when it changes from the triplets to the straight 4-4 four, four beat, I think that's really good. And the Greek feel to it, which I think is deliberate. They're trying to sound like Nana Mascuri or something. I don't know. The song's more clever than it is good, I think. I, I do like it, but it's not the best in the album. Okay, on appeal, they get the tick back on appeal. Cool. I like it a lot. For me, that's one of the standout tracks of the album. Your lips are moving, I cannot hear. Your voice is soothing, but the words aren't clear. You don't sound different, I've learned the I'm looking through you. I love this. It's the best song the monkeys never recorded, isn't it? It's fantastic. <laughs> I think it's a great song. There's a real growl to his voice in this one as well. It's, it gets, it's a, there's some emotion here. This is another one of his songs about Asher. Is it really? Mm. I read something recently about the monkeys. We all know about the monkeys. Mm. They're manufactured boy bands who were put together for a TV show. And the point about the monkeys in a TV show is that they want to be the Beatles, but they're a really unsuccessful version that they never managed to actually get any success. There was this brilliant story around that in 1967 or 1968, the monkeys had actually outsold the Beatles and the Stones combined. But it turned out that actually, I think Mike Nesmith just made that up in an interview. <laughs> and it was just accepted as fact. <laughs> and it wasn't until he wrote his autobiography some 20 years later that the truth came out that he just made it up. I think that's great. <laughs> One more reason to love the monkeys. That is great. Of which there are already many. There are many, yes. So I then rediscovered, I think when I was at university, a friend of mine had got this box set of all the monkeys' recordings, and it's absolutely fantastic. I told my mum one time when I was about, I don't know, must be about 17 or 18 years old, that I'd heard some monkey stuff that I really liked, and I'd be quite interested to hear more stuff. And her best friend, who's called Nancy, she was a big fan of the monkeys. And also the next time they were on the phone, my mum was telling her friend that Alan's he's into the monkeys and then she turned up at their door with a greatest hits album for me just gave me this album wow and it was fantastic and it had songs like she and listen to the band on it that I'd never heard before that are just oh brilliant I love listen to the band I think that might be my favorite monkeys song do you know it yeah 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 great stuff I love the monkeys going back to I'm looking through you there is something joyous and naive about the whole idea that they get so excited about cars and it's the beep beep bit in it it's just that's presumably still a novelty for people in the mid 60s but it's absolutely joyous track 11 in my life there are places I remember Can recall some 
Lennon number. Nick, what do you reckon? This is actually one of my favourites on the album. Absolutely loved it. Love the piano on it. I think it's a cracker. This could have come from right at the end of the Beatles' time, I think. It's so far away from Beatlemania, musically and lyrically. I love it. Very good. It's gone beyond the girl boy thing. More of an introspective ponderance from John Lennon. The back-like piano bit was uh, George Martin playing after the Beatles had gone home and left a big gap in the middle of the song, apparently. This song is one of Esther, my wife's favourite. She feels the words for this. As I said before, sometimes I don't really listen to lyrics, but the lyrics on this one do get me. And the vocals, the beautiful guitar refrains through it. This is a faultless song, almost, for me. Really, really loved it. Well, I don't really like it. (laughs) Um, Nonsense. I'm sorry. I was kind of astonished about how highly regarded this song is. Apparently, Mojo Magazine in 2000 named it as the greatest song of all time. I wouldn't even put it in the top five of side two of Rubber Soul. Ooh. <laughs> That's not the worst criticism you could make of any song ever. I think it sounds like the sort of middle-of-the-road 50s pap that the Beatles were largely responsible for destroying. No. Yeah, way offline, kid. Way offline. This sounds like the really good stuff that Lennon went on to do in his post-Beatles solo career. Well, I think it's bland and middle-of-the-road. <laughs> <laughs> I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with you, Will. We've got him this time. Nick, who are you with, him or us? It's not a competition. Nick, tell us. I'm with you. (laughs) Let's dig a bit deeper. Al, what's your problem with this track? Because I think this is one of the strongest on the album. I want to make it clear that I'm not saying it's terrible. I'm saying that it's one of the weakest tracks on an exceptionally good album. For me, it's the second worst song on the album. It's got some catchy elements to it. There is some nice guitar on it, and there are some nice harmonies and nice vocal melodies Yeah, you're coming round to it now, aren't you? I'm telling you what I think of it. We're talking relative to the other songs on the album. We're going through it song by song. We're talking about the album, and in that context, Mm -hmm. relative to the other songs, I don't think it's, it's very good. Compared to what I think are the best Beatles songs, it's not a patch on those. And for Mojo Magazine to say this is the best song ever written, I think that's ludicrous. But, you know, each their own. Yeah. I guess. Anyway, it's about time we had a little bit of friction here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Should yeah. we rattle on to wait? But if your heart breaks, don't wait. Turn me away. And if your heart's strong, hold on. I won't delay. It's a good song, I think. That's a good one. But it's laboured. There's something about it just is a bit forced. So not my favourite song of it, but it still gets a good from me. I love that rattle along tambourine and shaky egg mm. thing that you've going on mm. there. It's yeah. that. That's a bit that saves it for me, really. Mm. Chris mentioned how the, they had to cancel some of the studio time because there not enough songs. This song was originally written and partially recorded for Help earlier in the year, and they discarded it from Help. And I think that shows it's not the best song on the album, is it? But it's all right. Yeah. I think the vocals and the verse are fantastic. The whole thing feels a bit underdeveloped to me and I don't like the tambourine I think the tambourine's annoying it's too loud it's too upfront. my biggest complaint about the album is the 
extra percussion on every single song, which quite often drowns the drums out. There's something about that upfront tambourine and shaky egg thing that just taps something deep and subliminal in my heart and my head. That's because they're the only musical instruments you can play. <laughs> no, I haven't got oh! enough timing. I've got enough talking timing for that. I didn't say you could play them well. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think about the, just across the album, the brutal stereo separation? I wish it was easier to listen to the mono version of the album. It's one of the problems in modern streaming services. You're stuck with whatever the record companies have decided to put on the streaming service. And I'd have sure, preferred yeah. to have listened on my headphones to the mono version than the stereo version. It's the early days of stereo. They didn't have the technology to mix it any better than that. So I'm not, I'm not complaining about it, I just, but I don't like it. It's very noticeable. Nick, have you said anything about this song? I was kind of agreeing with most of what you were saying actually up to this point it's not my favourite track I think it's not bad but it wasn't thrilling me we get a sense mm. this album is tailing off is mm. it? I think so yes so if I needed someone if I had some more time to spend then I guess I'd be with you my friend if I needed someone had you come some I do love this song. This is their Birds tribute or rip-off or whatever. <laughs> but I, I think this is great. The Birds thing is incredibly obvious, isn't it? As it is with Nowhere Man. I don't think it's as good as Nowhere Man and that's about the biggest criticism I'd make of it. It's good. I actually think I prefer this to Nowhere Man. Yeah, I do think okay. I prefer yeah. this. And that may just simply be that it hasn't got the baggage that Nowhere Man has got of that kind of over-familiarity. But that Birds thing is interesting because I was it's almost like a cross-pollination between the Beatles and the Birds and Dylan at this point. They're almost just bouncing ideas off and just picking up and then sharing and then bouncing back and developing and growing from each other. Circular. But this is a great track. Yeah, I like this a lot. Will, mm. what do you reckon of this one? It's a great song. Yeah, Nick, it's a absolutely stonker of a song. Very, very good. Yeah, it's a good song. Which brings us to the last track, Run For Your Life. You better run for your life if you can. With another man, that's the end, little girl. Well, you know that I'm a wicked guy, and I was born with a jealous mind. Final track, 14, Run for Your Life. I didn't like this one. No, nor me. I didn't like the subject matter. Well, this is my problem with it. It's it's the worst song on the album. I mean, it's just unpleasant. It is unpleasant, yeah. Mm. And. It annoys me that it's actually quite a catchy tune and there's bits about it that I do yeah. think are genuinely good because I don't want to like it because it's a, it's an unpleasant song. I wasn't sure whether it was a kind of supposed to be written as a caricature of an unpleasant person rather than just being an unpleasant song. But I, I, I kind of listened to it a few times and I think it is just an unpleasant song. I have read that John Lennon expressed regret about having written this song. Although, in general, the way the song works, the way the guitar works, the way the drums works, the way the tempo works, it's definitely something that the, um, the monkeys said, we'll have a bit of that. Because that's almost, what, what's it, something to Clarkville? No, that's that's right. Clarkville. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's got echoes of that, hasn't it? But you're right, it is a catchy tune, just... Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's just not very nice. Misogyny. Yeah. Lennon's an interesting character, isn't he? Because he's also the one who wrote the word on this album, which is all about how we need to get together and love one another. And I was listening to Help as well 
uh, over the last couple of weeks. And the best thing on help is Ticket to Ride. I wonder, did Lennon realise that he's the villain of that song and he's not the victim? He just seems to have some strange attitudes for someone who was so into the idea of peace and love. Was that not his character in Microcosm? I think it might well have been, yes. He just seems like such a great guy in many ways and such a really quite unpleasant guy in others. Mm. There's a blog which is about that. It's about subverting people's perceptions about famous people and it's either someone that is generally held to be quite unpleasant and then they throw out some lovely things that they did and then kind of throw it out for discussion or someone that's held to be almost saintly and then they highlight some of the less pleasant things that they did and the Lennon was one of the episodes of it and obviously peace and love and such things but also the fact that he was quite a violent chap in his past and did completely disown his first son but i mean people change don't they you know we're not condemned to lead the same life for our entire life we're all flawed i'm not really attacking lennon here i just think it's a bit complicated um this isn't a nice song and i think that he deserves to be criticized for writing these lyrics because i mean jesus who would write these you know it's horrible i was listening to this album for the first time and this track finished and i thought oh that's the end of side one i couldn't believe that we got through 14 tracks in 35 minutes. I generally did get to the end of this track and think that was the end of side one. The brevity of it, it was it was extraordinary. And the other thing, which again I've said before, was the difficulty in listening to an album which is so full of tracks that I'm so familiar with. Trying to hear its actual greatness. You can miss the greatness because the familiarity just kind of over <laughs> overshadows it. I think I did manage to break through that in the end after multiple listens to and actually heard the tracks for what they were. And it is a great album. How about you, Nick? I think it's a great album. You can talk about maybe side one's greater than side two and there's a couple of tracks out at the end where it sort of tails off, but it's a full-on body work. This is spectacular. It's absolutely fantastic. And the playing is so tight. The singing is incredible. I think this just amplifies Ringo's role in things. There's some absolutely phenomenal drums on this. I always like to talk about that. You can see them taking off from here. Yeah, I think they're going to do well, aren't they? I I think so, based on this. These boys have got a future. Will, what's your overview? When Apple brought out their Apple Music service and the Beatles and Paul McCartney at that time said, there's no way you're ever going to have any Beatles music on your service. It may be eight, nine years ago. It all got settled and I think Apple paid the Beatles $1.2 billion for the Beatles' music. And at the time, I was thinking, who would spend that much money on old farty music? And listening to this album today, I feel ashamed because, oh yeah, (laughs) I now know why that music was worth that much. And I've almost become a disciple um, after listening to this music. You know, I'm I'm telling friends, hey, have you ever listened to that Beatles album? And they're looking at me like, are you crazy? And I'm like, no, listen to it. It's really good. You know, so I've become a disciple. When the Beatles came on iTunes, I was like, finally, I can hear this band, the Beatles. (laughs) Never been any opportunity up until then to actually hear them. This is the point where, obviously they were brilliant before, but this is the point where they started to get beyond brilliance into whatever that is and just this is why 45 years on we're still talking about this album because 55 years on we're still talking about this album because it was and it remains 
great and everything that came after is extraordinary. And I think everyone should just take however long it takes, a couple of days or a couple of hours to just sit down and listen to these 10 albums. It's ridiculous that people don't listen to these albums because this is probably the greatest band that there ever has and will be in terms of what they've actually done in such a short space of time and the legacy, the fact that they're still so relevant and have inspired so much that has gone after them. Maybe it's a case that people just think they already know because yeah. <laughs> they're so familiar mm-hmm. with the Beatles. That was the main reason why I hadn't more recently gone back and listened to them because, oh, I know the Beatles. It's that yeah, me and it's too. That and, it's that. and it is that and it's that and it's that. But, it's, but when you actually sit down and listen to all that together, you realise that, yes, but actually that is absolute unsurpassed greatness i think it's very similar to listening to the first four or five teenage fan club albums Al, <laughs> <laughs> you've not yet had your overview of the album Al. go on far away if you don't know this album you listen to us now enthusing about it just go and listen to it but don't listen to it once listen to it over a few weeks several times and get yeah, to know all the songs it. it is absolutely spectacularly good album and you get to know the songs and the strengths of the songs because it does sound like it was recorded in the 60s and all and that can be a bit off-putting. It's quite lo-fi, but it's amazing. And I'm a bit embarrassed in the same way that I think maybe we all are that I've, I wouldn't say dismissed this album, but never really paid attention to it. And when it's been in the Rolling Stone 500 of best albums of all time and I thought, yeah, whatevs, you know, you would say that, Rolling Stone boring middle-aged men and so on maybe it's just that now i'm a boring middle-aged man and i wasn't then but it is amazing and like will i'm finding myself just i'm having to force myself to not go and listen to the beatles every opportunity you know because <laughs> because i've been watching stuff on youtube it keeps throwing beatles stuff at me because people like the beatles so the algorithm is obviously going to present them to me and i'm really struggling to not put on everything every interview with george harrison trying not to get obsessed because i, I do see that you can probably go down the rabbit hole with the beatles and listen to them almost exclusively um and i don't i don't want to be that guy <laughs> why are the beatles so great are they so great because they were first? Or was there some never-to-be-repeated-again magic that happened when these four individuals came together and started to make music? It's not that they were there first. They were the first to do the great things. They yes, the first to do there is that. Things. I'm trying to kind of figure out why they became enormous and continue to be enormous 55 years down the line and continue to absolutely stand up to critical scrutiny 55 years down the line i think they had great songwriting capability musicianship which was very good and there's a guy called george martin who saw that it's not that he's responsible for the beatles but the fact is he was a great producer it's like all great things it's it's a perfect storm stars align why will they never be surpassed Because there's nothing new left anymore to do? It's not possible to be the Beatles again, to to have that sort of fertile ground where no one's done what you're doing before. Technology has always driven what musicians are able to do. And they were at the dawn of rock and roll. Electric guitars were quite new at the time. Yeah. Um, the recording technology, most importantly, multi-track tape was really new. I mean, you know, in the days of like Frank Sinatra, which it's only five years maybe before the Beatles. Yeah. They were yeah. recording into one microphone, wheeling a guy with a saxophone up to the mic to play his solo on a trolley and then pulling him back again when he was done. The four-track technology they were using was cutting edge. And, you know, obviously it's nothing now. The electric guitar was a massive leap forward 
covered in musical technology and the mixing <laughs> desks and the recording, the tape to record and compressors and stuff like that and the preamps that they had in the studio, which are a large part of what the Beatles sound like. You're adding layers and layers of technology, but is it that? Or is it just a bit of magic when four people come together and just do something that no one's ever done before? And Well, the point is that it's never been done before because the technology didn't exist to do it. I once got ejected from the Abbey Road premises very drunkenly one evening. Were you sick in the garden? I wasn't sick in that garden. <laughs> I did. My, myself and a friend after university, we were in London and enjoying a lot of beer. And we went decided to go on a little walking Beatles tour and we went round and looked up at the old EMI building, you know, the balcony where they pictured on those blue and red albums. And then we, we ended yeah, up yeah. going by Abbey Road quite late at night after the pubs had shut and decided to go and wander in. And there was scaffolding at the back of the building. <laughs> Obviously climbed up the scaffolding. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Try and find in and got uh, um, eventually caught by a security guard who very patiently and politely kind of asked us to leave. Did you feel that there was a, a special magic about you being ejected from these premises that you'd never had from any other premises? Well, yeah, you know, I, and I've been ejected from a lot of places over the years. Sure you have. <laughs> I think you're being a bit dismissive, though, of of the technology pushing forward music here, Chris. I, now, that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't no, explain I, I, everything about the Beatles, right? It's a perfect storm. And the fact that they were so, so successful then allowed them to have the creative control that no other band would have been allowed. They were leading the charge and achieving stuff at a rate that other people hadn't before, which allowed yeah. them to have the creative control that people didn't have before. They overtook the record industry until the record industry reasserted control. Six massive albums in the space of three years is extraordinary, plus two films in that short space of time. And they're in their early 20s when they're yeah. doing this. The 70s was the kind of key period of those big artists with complete creative control and yeah. some you know and that just turned into effect, a monster it turned into a monster that effectively created punk you yeah know? and and then all of a sudden we were back to industry control yeah yeah I think we kind of know what we think of Rubber Soul, don't we? But we should probably go around the room. Nick, what do you reckon of Rubber Soul as a last word? And best song of the album? Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, favourite song. Yeah, that's a good Favourite yeah. song. Let me see. I, I think if I needed someone, although drive my car, it's, uh, it's hard. It is hard, isn't it? Go on, pick one. Uh, I'm picking if I needed someone. Okay, great. Al, your favourite song and I last think I'd word. probably go for, for the word is my favourite, although yeah. it's such a difficult choice. Drive My Car's right up there as well, and I'm looking through you. Probably my three favourites, but then if you ask me tomorrow, I might say three different ones. But <laughs> The Word is a, is a great song, and it's just a fabulous album. I'm embarrassed that I would have been a bit dismissive of it before we did this. Will? I was going to start off with my famous tick <laughs> count. Yep. And this one scored 29, which is the joint top. Along with... Um, Oh, um, PJ Harvey. PJ, um, PJ. <laughs> anyway, it's certainly up there as as the the top end of what we've listened mm. to. And in terms of tracks in my life, but there are many others like the word Norwegian word, drive my car, and others in my life would be my favourite. Uh, very good. Yeah, the thing that I, I didn't really notice at the time, but the standout tracks for me are those gentle stripped down ones. So in my life, Michelle. But the one I'm going for is Norwegian Wood. But it's a brilliant album. 30 minutes of just the greatest tunes. 
And should we be surprised? I don't know. This is the Beatles well on their way to their creative peak. We shouldn't be surprised that this is a great album, but we've just hadn't really had the time to, to go and look at it properly. I'm glad we have now. Yeah, me, yeah, too. me too. It's been brilliant. Cool. So that was the Beatles. The Beatles had some number ones. It was how many number ones, Al, in nineteen sixty-five? Did you count? A lot. I didn't count how many. There, there were loads. There were very few songs there that stayed there for more than two weeks. And there were and loads of some good ones. Amazing, <laughs> some incredible number yeah. ones. So we're going to go around and see what your favourites were. I'm going to start with Chris. What was your favourite number one of nineteen sixty-five? It was a really great year. It, again, it's one of those years, obviously, way before I was born. But I've stayed away from the Beatles once just because we've been doing Beatles all night. And I've made a short list of five. I don't really know what to go for. <laughs> I'm going to take Tom Jones. It's not unusual. <gasps> ah, nice great choice. Still love it. It's yes. a great song. Still love it. All these years on. It is a great song. Yeah. Will, what, what's your favourite? Again, spoilt for riches, but I'll go for Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds, yeah. which is... Also on my top five. It's a song as fresh now as it was um, recorded and released back then. Very good choice. Well, Al, what about you? Staying clear of the Beatles is probably a good idea because it does narrow down the field because obviously Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out double A side is just amazing. Ticket to Ride... One of my favourite Beatles songs. But there are so many others, aren't there? I mean, Walker Brothers, Rolling Stones, Hollies, oh, the Kinks. I mean, that's the, uh, Moody Blues. Yeah. However, I'm going to go with uh, I Got You, Babe by Sonny and Jar, <laughs> which um, I thought might elicit that reaction. But yeah. let me defend it. No, great. Now you don't that need to see this. That was also in my top yeah. five. <laughs> I'll defend it to our <laughs> listeners then. A lot of people think they hear it people murdering at a karaoke and they think it's this dreadful karaoke song or they know oh, it's amusing because it's the song that wakes them up in Groundhog Day every day. But it's 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 magic and yep. it's the Phil Spector-ish production, which is actually, it's not Phil Spector, it's Sonny Bono himself who was percussionist with the Wrecking Crew and played percussion on a lot of Phil Spector recordings. Uh, and like a lot of people who worked as a musician with Phil Spector, went on to be a really good producer as well. And it's got that wall of sound sound to it. And it, it's a brilliant song, but it's a brilliant producer song as well. I absolutely love it. So, yeah, I got you, babe. And I've also sung yeah. it at karaoke as well, obviously. <laughs> what, what's, the, um, what's the woodwind on that one? Is it a... Uh, it's not the saxophone. It's got an it? oboe on it as well. Oboe, the yeah. Oboe yeah. is so hey. underused in rock music. You've got to love the oboe. <laughs> yeah, lovely sound, isn't it? What you got for us, Nick? I was going to pick the birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, uh-huh. but Will got there first. So, do you know what? I'm going to go for something else. I, I'm going to go for Make It Easy on Yourself, oh, by the way. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, uh, I think you'll all agree also is a great yeah, tune. Yeah. I'd narrowed down my favourite number ones to five tracks. We've just named four of them. My fifth one was Go Now by the Moody Blues. That's a great song, yeah. <laughs> Leaving aside those Beatles, as we said. Look at what else is there. What you a year. that love what and an feeling. That was kind of like my yeah. next choice. I love the Righteous Brothers. They were absolutely brilliant. The Last Time by the Rolling Stones, I think, is a fantastic song as well. King of the Road by yeah. Roger Miller. Yeah. King of the Road was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm Alive by the Hollies. Uh, the Beatles again with help. Which, the Kinks tired of waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a spectacular year. Uh, really, really brilliant. 
Yeah, what a great year. So, Chris, what was your favourite album of the year? It has to be Rubber Soul. Fair enough. First and last word, really, on that one. Yeah, yeah. Will, what about you? Well, I was, again, spot for choice. But the one I'd go for, and probably isn't going to surprise any of you, is the second album by The Four Tops. I'll always bang on about The Four Tops because I don't think they get as much recognition as they deserve. The standout song from that album is Baby, I Need Your Loving, which I think you probably know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baby, I need your loving. But... That is just a great song. Good choice. Um, so yeah, I did quite a lot of research, um, listened to quite a lot of albums because I, I knew of a lot of the albums that came out, and and obviously knew a lot of the bands who released big albums this year, but I didn't know any of the albums. Uh, so I thought, you know, I'm actually going to be conscientious about it and not just pick something out of a hat. Um, I'm actually going to go for not the album I think is is my favorite to listen to, but I think maybe at least as important as Robert Soul, maybe more so, possibly the first modern rock album, which is Dylan and Highway 61 Revisited, which feels like a more coherent piece of work, even than Rubber Soul, than any other album that I actually listen to. It feels like a proper rock album, and it's not pushing the boundaries like the Beatles were. It really is just like a, a rock band plugging in, turning up and rocking out. But it's it's pretty powerful, and all the songs are too long on it, unfortunately. I mean, the Desolation Row is a really good song, but it's like 11 and a half minutes long. <laughs> I mean, it's got like a Rolling Stone on it, which is... Great it's tune. a great tune, yes. Great Although I think it's got one verse too many in it, and I think that's the problem with probably every song on the album. And I'm not going to big it up. I'm not going to say that this is one of my favourite albums. I don't think it's as good a listen as Rubber Soul, but I think it is the blueprint for rock music in the future more than Rubber Soul is. So for that reason, uh-huh. I'm going to say that Ooh. it's my album of the year. Which leaves you, Nick. Like you, Al, I looked at a lot of the rock albums and then discarded them because they were full of covers mm-hmm. and it wasn't it didn't seem like the artist's own voice and that's because we were only starting to hear that with the Beatles and Dylan and, mm-hmm. and so on there was lots of interesting soul records I discovered soul music through the Blues Brothers film right? that was probably my entry point but actually that had taken me down a rabbit hole and I discovered Sam Cooke and mm-hmm. Otis Redding and, and Otis Blue was released that year was that was a big one uh-huh. for me but yeah yeah I missed that so that was in my vision but the other thing I discovered uh, it was jazz, and that was largely through my father, and there was a lot of great jazz records that year too. Chris, you talked about almost choosing John Coltrane, John and there Coltrane, was records yes. by... Yeah. There was a great uh, album by Herbie Hancock, Maiden Voyage, Duke Ellington, Don Cherry, Stan Getz, and I said Gilberto all had released that year, but actually an album that I've discovered when I was at uni and has meant a lot to me over the years, and I, I still play regularly to this day, is an album by Horace Silver called Song for My Father. It's a Blue Note record, and it's one of my favourite jazz records of all time, so that's my record of the year. And an interesting choice, choice. Respect for choosing something a wee bit different. I feel very idle going for Rubber Soul, but then... It's almost like you haven't bothered. I've already done what you guys have done in choosing Rubber Soul, because I had to go back when 65 came in and figure out what album I wanted to listen to. So Rubber Soul, and I'm sticking by it. But great choices, everyone. So next time, Al, what are we listening to? Well, once again, I've chosen a year that has made it very difficult for me to make a choice. Last time it was 95 where I knew so many great albums. 88, which is the year we're doing, 1988, is maybe the year of the most 
albums that are really quite formative in my music tastes as they are today, which has made it extremely it's tricky. It's isn't it? We were kind of yeah. 17, 18. Exactly. As, as a teenager, that... I was starting to find my own feet. I loved the, the rock and the metal music, but I was getting that through my brother, my big brother, um, when I was 13, 14 years old. I liked the music that he liked. And by 88, I was starting to discover bands that were my bands. And, and also, that, another thing about 1988 is you can see the beginnings of the seismic shift that's coming in rock music. Uh, and that seismic shift doesn't really, you know, the tsunami doesn't hit until 1991 with Nirvana riding the crest of the wave. Good metaphors there, by the way. I, I, I didn't plan this. This is some good metaphor work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Pixies um, released Surfer Rosa in 1988. Yeah. Jane's Addiction yeah. released Nothing Shocking in 1988. These are perhaps the two key bands before Nirvana. Nirvana got the credit for killing hair metal, but it was Jane's Addiction that killed hair metal and then left that space for Nirvana to grab the whole thing. Mm. The Wonder Stuff, The Eight-Legged Groove Machine, is yeah, not an album yeah, yeah. I discovered that year but right. maybe like the yeah. following year when Don't Let Me Down Gently came out. That was, I mean, Don't Let Me Down Gently is mm. such a key song for me. Um, and then I went back and like the first album and I, I actually liked the first album more than the second album. But um, I decided I'm going to go for a big band. This really narrowed it down to two, one of which was The Joshua Tree by U2, which I discarded because it's just a bit on the long side. And I've decided that I'm going to go with uh, with an album that I know and they were a key part of my changing musical taste and R.E.M. and Green is what we're having. I'm looking forward to that because my R.E.M. knowledge starts with Out of Time. I hope you'll all like it. I think it's it's a good album. Excellent. Jolly good. Look forward to that one. 88. It's been quite an epic week this week, hasn't it? It's um, probably one of our longer ramblings for some Mm. time. Um, Mm -hmm. For one of our shortest albums, but lots of tracks, lots to say about them. Um, That was 1965. Next time, 1988. See you there. See you in the future. Bye. See ya. Bye.